Tell you what, if you're, <clears throat> if you're looking for a place to put something extra, this little pulpit is not, doesn't have any room. <laughs> There's a lot back here. And if you're missing something, it's probably down here. Well, the Christmas season is a great season because it forces us, and by us I mean our culture, even in a minimal way, to consider Christ, at least to have to deal with the name, the whole happy holidays thing that's become so prevalent is itself an attempt to not say Christ in Christmas. Um, and I was sort of doing the math on it. I don't know what one-twelfth of our lives represents, but if you think about it, that's a lot of our lives. And we devote one-twelfth of our lives to Christmas because all of December is Christmas. And uh, in our church, of course, as soon as Thanksgiving's done, we are off to the Christmas races without wasting any time. Christmas is a wonderful time to consider Christ. And to me, some of the greatest parts of the Christmas season are Christmas movies. I love Christmas movies. Most of them are pure heresy, but I love Christmas movies. My favorite Christmas movie is one we're all familiar with, where this guy named George finds himself stuck in this crummy little town, working in this shabby little office. Everyone else has moved away to bigger and better things, and his hard scrabble life of sacrifice and responsibility just chips away at his dreams of seeing the world and, and of being an architect. Suddenly, a financial crisis leaves him nowhere to turn. Even his prayers in a bar go unanswered, so it seems, and with no hope, he thinks, he makes a desperate choice. But as soon as his uh, friends and family hear about the problem, they pitch in the cash that's necessary, problem solved. Bink, done. But cash was the easy fix. George had a much bigger problem. Uh, his problem was that he only came to the conclusion that he had a wonderful life after, he, after his wonderful life was taken away or he was given the perspective that what life would be like, what have been like without him. George Bailey's bigger problem was that he needed a special gift wrapped in an unusual package called perspective. Perspective. What would life be like if there was no George Bailey? And once he saw that, it was wonderful to get his terrible life back. The life that he was trying to leave was actually a life that he realized, given the true perspective, that he would do anything to get back. And it was all perspective. Perspective is a marvelous gift. Of course, life is a whole lot more complicated than a two-hour Christmas classic movie, but uh, the promise or, and the premise of that remains exactly the same. We need perspective. So let's get a little bit and look at the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We're, com we're completing the book of Ruth. Uh, we're going to look at all of chapter 4, but I'll tell you what, why don't you, before you get there, look at chapter 2. Let's go there first. 
And if you've been with us, and, whether, and if you've not been with us, either way, the story of Ruth is the same. It's a great story. In fact, just this week, I had a friend of mine who didn't know that we're going through Ruth. He, he told me that he had read Ruth, and he says, that's just such a great story. And it is. You know, Ruth and Esther both, if, if, you, if you were going to make a good movie, you know, make it after Ruth and Esther. Because the, the suspense and the, the poetic irony and the twists and the turns are wonderful. But uh, so, summary, what, where, what have we seen so far in the book of Ruth? Well, this family in Israel living in Bethlehem has left, left Bethlehem because of, it was a time of famine and the time of the judges, and they went to their neighboring country of Moab, a pagan country. So these God-fearing people, as it were, left and sojourned in a, in a foreign country. And then the father dies, and then the, the sons decide, well, we better get married and carry on the family line. And so the sons marry pagan women. And then the sons die. And then the, the mother or, named Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, and she hears that God gives, has given bread or food back to their people in Israel, so she decides to return. The daughters-in-law say they'll return, but when they find out that marriage isn't going to happen in Israel, one of them decides to stay in Moab, but one, Ruth, decides to, to go with Naomi. They return about the time of the barley harvest, and as they get there, Ruth asks if she can go glean in a field. And she does, and she just so happens, we're told, just so happens to come to the particular field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz, we're told by Naomi, is a kinsman redeemer. And we saw last time, this is kind of a, a disco. <laughs> we saw last time that, uh, that a kinsman redeemer is sort of a law, in, or was a law in Israel in which a, uh, a close family member, if there was no one to carry on the family line of someone close to you, that if you were able to, then you would marry the widow and raise up a descendant for that line so that that line wouldn't, wouldn't vanish and that so the land could continue in that family. And so there are several kinsmen redeemers, we're told, but, uh, and, and Boaz is one of them, but Boaz hasn't done any redeeming. The whole barley harvest, the whole wheat harvest, he hasn't done anything. And so we're sort of scratching our head why. Until we saw last time, Ruth finally, you know, lays it on the line at Naomi's urging and says, hey, you're a kinsman redeemer, get to redeeming. You know, basically marry me is what Ruth is saying. And Boaz says, I'm so glad you asked. This is major paraphrase. I'm so glad you asked. It's not that I haven't thought about it, but there is someone who's actually closer than me, which is why I haven't done anything. But believe me, tomorrow I'm going to address him now that you've approached me. So I guess there's some protocol that had to happen here, and Boaz couldn't have been more relieved. And so this is where we are in chapter 4. But before we get to chapter 4, look at chapter 2, verse 20. We're told, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead, speaking of Boaz. And again Naomi said to her, to Ruth, The man is our relative. 
He is one of our closest relatives. So Boaz is not just a relative. Naomi says he is one of our closest relatives. So he's not just related. He is a close relative. And if you look at your margin, you should have uh, literally he is one of our redeemers. So the New American Standard here says closest relatives, which really doesn't tell us a lot. Uh, but Redeemer is a better. He is a kinsman redeemer. But notice he is not our kinsman redeemer. He is one of our. So even in the text, we've got a little foreshadowing here that there's more than one kinsman redeemer. But like we said last week, even though this was sort of expected, if you didn't do it, you know, there was shame on you for not doing it. But you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to redeem. And no one's come forth to do it yet. All right, so now chapter 4. Let's conclude this wonderful story and, of course, its vital application to our lives. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz goes up to the gate. The gate is where official business took place, and there were seats at the gate where uh, business would happen. If you ever go to Israel and go down to an, a city called Beersheba, they have actually uh, preserved an area where you can see it's kind of a U-shaped area in the gate. You walk in the gate, and there's places all around where you can clearly imagine where these elders would sit. And so Boaz sits down there, gathers others to sit down there, and gathers this man called the close relative. And the, 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 uh, the text here doesn't really translate what the original Hebrew says. Uh, Boaz calls the guy friend. I'm not sure what your translation, if you don't have the American, New American Standard, what yours says. Uh, but that's not what the Hebrew means. The Hebrew literally is the, the phrase poloni almoni which doesn't tell us a lot, <laughs> but it, it, it means a certain one. And you, you may even have that in the margin as the literal uh, translation, but it means a certain one. In other words, the author is saying, I'm not going to tell you his name. I'm leaving this guy anonymous. Why would this, well, we've got all these other names, why would we not get to know the name of this closest relative? Because Mr. No-Name was about to make the dumbest decision of his life. And how would you like your name to be recorded there? So the author is gracious by keeping Mr. No-Name anonymous. But before Mr. No-Name gives us relief, he gives us cause for worry. Look at verse 3. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belongs to our brother, belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Oh. This is not what we wanted him to say. This is like that point in the movie 
where the hero, you know, is about to be crushed, you know, by the boulder, or there's you know, there's just this horrible point in the story where it's like, no, that's not at all what's supposed to happen. That's not what this guy's supposed to say. This guy's supposed to say, no, I don't want to redeem it. I mean, the whole story has led up to this time where they leave Israel, and oh, that's sad, and they come back to Israel, and oh, there's hope. The field of Boaz, oh, he's a kinsman redeemer. Go and approach Boaz, and will you redeem? I will redeem. I'm going to go make sure that everything's okay first. They get to the gate. This guy says, yes, I'll do it. This Mr. No-Name that we've never seen before, that we don't have any affinity for, has now stepped in front of everybody to say, yeah, I'll redeem it. You imagine how fast Boaz's heart was thumping at this point? I mean, it is, it's, it's tension. This is the pinnacle of the whole story. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz tightens the noose. Boaz says, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. In other words, you don't get the land without the lady. The close relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. And all God's people said, yay, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. We get excited at this point. Mr. No Name was able to redeem, but he was not willing to redeem. And then he takes his sandal off. What in the world does that mean? Well, in ancient times, they would not so much go up to the title office and sign one million sheets of paper in order to transfer title or to buy a house. I don't know. Do you remember the first time you bought a house and went to the title company? You know, they bring in this ream of paper. And, you know, they put the first one before you. I, like, literally was reading everything. <laughs> and by the end, I mean, it's just like, sure, give it to me, I'll sign it. Sure, give it to me, I'll sign it. You, didn't, you want my second-born child? Sure, I'll sign it. I mean, you just don't care by, by the 800 signature. Well, that's not the way it worked in Israel. In Israel, you would remove your sandal and give it to the person that's buying the land as an indication that you have permission now to walk on my property. So it was, a, it was a visual, you know, you have permission to walk on my property. Now, he probably got his sandal back, but there was this, you know, visual demonstration of passing the sandal, taking the sandal, and now you have permission to walk on my land. And this is what was happening. So, verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, I love this, Boaz wastes no time. You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Mr. No Name was not willing, though he was able. Boaz was both willing and able. And the people and the elders pray a blessing on Ruth and Boaz. First, on Ruth. Why would the people and the elders compare Ruth to Rachel and Leah? Interesting comparison. I mean, they built the house of Israel, okay, but why compare to them? Well, Rachel is mentioned first, and Rachel, you remember, was barren for years and uh, before she bore children. Now, turn back to chapter 1 real quick and notice something that we didn't point out. We were saving it for the wonderful conclusion, if it isn't already obvious. But look at chapter 1, the end of verse 2. It says, They entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So let's pause there for a second before we read the, the verses that follow, and let me tell you a little something about Hebrew. I think we talked about this some with regard to Jonah. Remember when we looked at the book of Jonah, we talked about the fact that Jonah was in the whale, or the great fish, sorry, I'm a child of my Sunday school class, <laughs> um, that he was in the great fish three days, and then Jonah prayed. There was, this, there was this sense of progression, and the Hebrew text actually has a way of indicating consecutiveness. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and it gives a progression. Well, Ruth is laid out this way as well. And so when we're told at the end of verse 2, they entered the land of Moab and remained there, verse 3 is, you could almost translate, next, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. Next, verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women, as the name of the one was Orpah, the other was Ruth. Next, they lived there ten years. Next, Machlon and Kilion died. Why is that significant? It's significant because these two sons married women of childbearing age who bore no children for ten years. So Ruth didn't have kids. And clearly, she was barren. For 10 years, this woman didn't have children. And so, turn back to chapter 4, and now all of a sudden we see that Ruth entering this marriage, don't you wonder, in the back of Ruth's mind, she's thinking, yeah, but uh, I can't have kids. Don't you know, she was wondering that. Well, the prayer is for her to be like Rachel and Leah. Rachel was barren. And so they're praying that the woman who comes into your house may be like Rachel, that though she's barren, she would be touched by God to bear children. And they pray for Boaz. They pray for Boaz that his house or his lineage would be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
Well, this is sort of scratching our Old Testament history, isn't it? Remember Perez being born of Tamar and Judah? Remember the story of Tamar and Judah? Judah had sons. One of them married Tamar, but he was wicked, so the Lord put him to death. And then the next brother, in order to fulfill the custom, at least this particular part of the custom was called the Leverite marriage, where a brother would marry the widow of a dead brother in order to raise up the name of his brother. And so they did that. Uh, Judah's other son did this, but he didn't want, you know, the the brother. He didn't want the brother to get his name, and so he uh, he he didn't, you know, fulfill what was necessary. And so the Lord put him to death. And you can sort of see the pattern. Well, son number three, uh, Judah says, you know what? Wait till he grows up. Tamar, you don't marry him just yet. Well, time goes on, time goes on, time goes on. Finally, Tamar Tamar decides, you know what? Judah's not going to give me that third son. It's my right to have an heir through the line of Judah. So what does Tamar do? She disguises herself as a prostitute and and, uh, approaches Judah during a time of very vulnerable time where his wife just died. And, of course, Judah, you know, you can go read it. You don't have to. You don't need the details. And Tamar gets pregnant by Judah. Tamar had a right, according to God's law, to uh, carry on the line. And if Judah wasn't going to do it, Tamar was going to make it happen. And Tamar made it happen. And Judah said, she is more righteous than I. And so, why in the world would they pray that Boaz would be like uh, Perez, who came from that union, from Judah and Tamar? Because Judah and Tamar were a Leverite situation whereas they came in and you would marry the, the wife of a dead brother and raise up offspring for, for that dead brother. And so that's exactly what Boaz was doing. He says, I'm going to raise up offspring for Elimelech so that this line will continue and that the land will stay in the family. So that's why the people pray what they pray. Look at verse 13, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Ah, this is where all the wonderful loops of the story are get closed. It's just delightful to read this. And that the Lord enabled her to conceive. You see that? It's easy to read over that. But that is special when we consider what we saw in chapter 1, that Evidently, God had not enabled her to conceive those whole ten years because God was waiting for all the situations to occur that Boaz would be the father. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, and we'll see here in a minute that his name is Obed, which means servant. Oved in Hebrew means servant. servant. And so Ruth has a, has a son. Here, you, you might call it the original baby Ruth. <laughs> I know, I know, it's nuts. 
Oh, give me a break, okay? It's all right. But notice the women of Bethlehem, since we're given names, they don't just hand out the name of the son, but also they no longer call uh, Naomi Mara, but they refer to her as Naomi. In verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. She's gone from bitter back to pleasant. She's gone from empty to full. One of the most interesting contrasts in the book is the, is, is the statement that Naomi made. Remember back in chapter 1, she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. And now here, these ladies in verse 15 say that your daughter-in-law, I love this, who loves you. They don't just say that you know, she's better to you than seven sons, but she loves you. Who, is, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. The contrast there is she said, Naomi said that she left full with two sons. She came back with one who is better to you than seven sons. This is how God works. This is how God works. Well, a couple of principles, actually several, from the story and really from the whole story of Ruth. And here's the first Realize that your present emptiness may prove to be God's blessing. Realize that your present emptiness may prove to be God's blessing. Naomi came back and she was convinced that she was empty. And the reality was, as these women pointed out, Ruth was actually better to you than seven sons. Let's consider Naomi for just a second. We tend to focus on Ruth and Boaz, clearly the heroes, the hero and heroine of the story. But let's don't sidetrack Naomi just yet. I've really come to appreciate Naomi in this, uh, this round of uh, my study of the book of Ruth. And one thing I've noticed, how often she refers to the Lord. Look back, if you would, at chapter 1. And look at verse 8. She says to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Look at verse 9. May the Lord grant that you find rest. And then uh, as they return to Bethlehem, or as they head to Bethlehem, verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Ruth's, Ruth's statement in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, your people should be my people, your God, my God. There was in Naomi's life, whether she was strong in her faith in the moment or weak in her faith in the moment, an inescapable connection to God. So much so that Ruth says, your God is my God. Even the God that right now you're sort of blaming for all this, that's, that's my God. There had to have been such a commitment and a life demonstrated in Naomi that Ruth would say, that's the God I want, which is amazing. Also, look at verse 20. We saw this before, sort of from a negative perspective, but, but consider this also. Verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The end of verse 21 or 
why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. Even in her bitter heart, even in her bitter situation, she brought God into the picture. She still acknowledged God was involved, even though, from her perspective, God had caused it, or God was afflicting her, to use her own words. But notice, God was still there, even though she was struggling under the weight of God's sovereignty. God was still there. And then, chapter 2 Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Naomi said to Ruth, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi brings God into the conversation. So I'm not trying to, you know, paint Naomi in stained glass, but I am trying to give us a perspective that I'm not sure Naomi was as far off in left field as we often paint her. She was just struggling like we all struggle with life. And God was still in the picture, very much in the picture. Notice what was it also. We won't read it, but you're familiar enough with the story. What caused her to go back to Bethlehem from Moab? She heard that the Lord had given food to his people. It was God, not just food. But the Lord was now involved again with Israel. Naomi wanted to go back and be part of that. Was there not food in Moab? You bet there was. Wasn't there? That's why they went there. That's why they had stayed there. That's why they didn't move on to some other place. But when she heard that the Lord had blessed Israel, she goes, I want to, I want to be back. I want to go be part of that. It was something about God in the picture, not just the food. Naomi wasn't... I wouldn't say that she was the bitter old woman that we often paint her to be. Plus, when we read here in chapter 4, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer. And may his name become famous in Israel. Even though Naomi may have understood God's intent, she saw God's hand in the events. And she never gave up on her belief in God, even though she may have wanted to blame him in moments of despair and, and frustration. And God used Naomi's struggles to deepen her faith. So Naomi really demonstrates that even when circumstances burden us to the point of despair, God doesn't give up on us. And I guess if, if, if I wanted to say one thing about Naomi, that we can take away, it'd be that. That God is faithful. I like the way Paul says, Paul says, if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even when we are weak in our faith, God doesn't give up on us. Naomi was weak in her faith in moments of the book of Ruth. But did God give up on Naomi? He didn't. He blessed her. He used that 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 season of great challenge in her life to deepen her walk with God, allowing her to struggle. Look at verse 16 once again, chapter 4. Most modern Bibles translate this as 
Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap. It could be lap. In fact, I've looked at quite a few modern versions, and most modern versions say lap. But for once, I sort of agree with the old King James here that says bosom. Not that she, that the nurse became his nurse, not a wet nurse, obviously, but a nurse in the sense of caretaker, the one who took care of the child. But, but laid him in her bosom, just the, the thought of just holding this child. Can you just imagine that? Now, lap also works, you know, either way. It, and the word, the word can go either way. It really can, so I don't want to make a big deal about it. But even if it is the lap, you just got to, you know, she, she held little Obed closely and must have marveled at the goodness of God. Right there in her lap, she came back with this expectation of a bitter future, and God totally turned it upside down. And the proof was there wiggling in her lap. The magnificence of God's grace. Have you ever held an Obed in your hands? I don't mean a baby, though maybe it was a baby. But I mean you've got a tangible something of the goodness of God to where you cannot deny God is involved. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a health issue. But something, God has jumped in ordinary events and has let you know I'm there and I've not forgotten you and I'm going to be with you. You see, when everything happens easy in our life, we can miss the power of God and the goodness of God. James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. We know that. Every good gift comes from God. But we don't really know that until the good gifts go away. And when the good gifts go away and then God gives them back, boy, those gifts are good. It's the whole George Bailey thing. I don't like my sorry life. Okay, well, let's say you've never been born. Can I have that sorry life back? Because now all of a sudden I've got perspective that I didn't have before. And I realize what a blessing my life is, even with all of the pain and struggle that I have in it. When everything happens easy in our lives, we miss the power of God. They're there all the time. We just miss them. We don't consider them. But when struggle is in the context, we see the goodness of God's provision in a way much clearer than we would otherwise. Now, here's the irony. Here's the irony. Life is richer. Life is richer when we have struggles and God shows himself faithful, as opposed to just, you know, the checks in the mail every two weeks. Hmm, No big deal. But when we have to struggle for that and we realize God is providing, Life is richer when we have a deeper connection to who our God is. Here's another principle. The first one was realize your present emptiness may prove to be God's blessing. The next one is sometimes we can't see God's faithfulness in our lives until it's upon us. Sometimes we can't see God's faithfulness in our lives until it's upon us. We're so burdened by the reality of our day-to-day existence that we don't see God's blessing until it's upon us. The death of Naomi's sons in the first part of the book is contrasted with the birth of Naomi's son at the end of the book. The author is working hard to give us this perspective. Naomi's sons die. End of the book, Naomi has a son. 
And in fact, it's called Naomi has a son. Uh, Verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi. And it wasn't Naomi's son, but it was considered Naomi's son because it's carrying on the line. So we're, we're meant to see that contrast. The end of the family line at the beginning is contrasted with the continue, continuation of the family line. The barren womb of Ruth is contrasted with her marriage and her motherhood. And here's a, a marvelous one. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, two relatives say that they'll help Naomi. But only one really does. Ruth and Orpah. Orpah takes off. Ruth stays. The end. Two relatives say that they'll help Naomi. Mr. No Name and Boaz. Mr. No Name decides, eh, I ain't going to do it, but Boaz does. And in both cases, two people say they're going to do it, but only one does. It's Ruth and it's Boaz. And in both cases, it was over the subject of marriage. In the case with Orpah and Ruth, it was the, the potential of a future marriage. Say, eh, you're probably not going to get married. Ruth says, it doesn't matter. Your God shall be my God. And then at the end, if you're going to take the land, you've got to take the lady. Mr. No Name says, eh, I don't want to do that. It might jeopardize my own inheritance. Boaz says, I'll do it. These contrasts we're meant to see to show us God's faithfulness in our lives. Sometimes, though, let's be honest, God doesn't close the loops. God doesn't close the loops. Death keeps loops open sometimes. I've shared with you about my, uh, my father's will, where he basically said that he didn't want me to speak at his funeral. Absolutely broke my heart. And he died before. I had no idea that was coming. That's an open loop. At least it's an open loop from the perspective of I never got to talk with my dad and work that out. But I can still close the loop in my mind and my heart by saying, you know what? He knows the truth now. Or one day, it's not going to matter. I can close the loop in my mind because resurrection is coming. Sometimes we we can't bounce back, as it were, when life takes stuff from us. Like, for example, you know, the death of a child or the death of a marriage or some serious health issue. After a very healthy reflection, though, even that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to bounce back and and regain what we've lost, even though we get perspective. We get perspective, but we still have a loss. It was that loss that gave us perspective, but it was still a loss. It's going to take, ultimately, resurrection to close all the loops in our life. So even though Christmas movies always close the loops, even though often in the Bible we see, like the book of Ruth, some wonderful closed loops, in our lives the loops don't always close. But we've got to know they will close one day, even if it takes resurrection. The book of Hebrews tells us that the people of faith died without receiving the promises of God. Talk about an open loop. But what's the solution? Resurrection. When God resurrects every Old Testament saint just before Jesus Christ rules the earth for a thousand years and talk about a fulfillment, the millennial kingdom on on planet earth is Jesus fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament, all the expectations of the Old Testament, and we, the church, get to go along for the ride. It's going to be great. 
There's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no Red Sea parting. Nothing but ordinary events. Marriage, death, struggle, disappointment, employment, food, working, waiting, land transfer, children, grandchildren, but God working all through the normalness of life to produce blessings. Does God know what he's doing when he allows hard times in our lives? Yes. Do we know what God's doing when he allows hard times in our lives? No, we don't. Does the Bible show that this is the way God wants it to be? Yes, because it requires faith. We always are going to have something to believe God for. We see this in Ruth, but let's take this and apply this in our lives. There's something that you're struggling with today. And I know you are, because I know I am. At least I hope you are, because I know I am. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But I know you are. I know you're struggling, because we always have to to have uh, faith in God. Sometimes, ponder this, ponder this. Sometimes God withholding our request may actually be because he wants to give us something more than our request. Sometimes God withholding our request may be because he wants to give us something more than our request. We see this in uh, Naomi's perspective. I went out empty. I went out uh, full, but I come back empty. The reality is, no, God wants to give you something more than that. And that can be the same thing in our lives. Well, believe it or not, the story gets even better. Look at verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of, oh, look at that, David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Abinadab. To Abinadab was born Nashon. To Nashon, Salmon. To Salmon was born Boaz. To Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. The whole point of the book of Ruth we get in the last word, David. Why do we have this wonderful story about this couple in Bethlehem? Because, ding, 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 David comes from this union. Ruth is the great, great grandmother of David. And that's how David gets to Bethlehem. (laughs) You ever wondered how David originated in Bethlehem? It was Ruth and Boaz. That's how it all came about. And if that's not enough... Let's leave Ruth for a moment and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Interesting bit of geography. We read in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ruth that Boaz went up to the gate, meaning the gate of Bethlehem was uphill, and Boaz's property was outside, you know, the actual city itself, which makes sense. If you've been to Bethlehem, it's hard to sort of see the terrain because there's so much built over everything. But if you're able to sort of, you know, kind of get down and look where ancient Bethlehem was is a hill. In fact, guess what is built on that hill today? It's called, it's the oldest standing church in Israel called the Church of the Nativity. It's where Jesus Christ was born. Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. There she is, right there in the New Testament. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. 
Now down verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Ruth is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Amazing. Amazing. You think Ruth had any idea when she said, your God shall be my God and I'll go with you? No clue. Do you think Boaz and Ruth had any idea? No clue. Do you think you and I have any idea of the long-standing implications of our desire to walk with Christ? We have no idea. But God does. God has plans. And when we think that, that what we do doesn't matter, or that walking with God doesn't matter, or with confessing to Him on a daily basis doesn't matter, or we need to remember that it does matter. There are long-term effects, generational effects, that God potentially will do with our obedience. So this is Matthew. You know, the, one of the problems with Christmas texts is we only read them at Christmas. One of, and Matt, if you read the Bible through the year, usually you start in January. You ever done that and sort of feel like, you know, you start in January with Matthew chapter 1, and you get to all this Christmas stuff, and you think, ah, we just did that for a month. You think it's sort of weird to read Matthew 1 in January. And then Luke makes it worse sometime in April or whenever you get around to reading Luke, and it's all this Christmas stuff at that time. But actually, it's wonderful. The problem with Christmas texts is we usually just read them in Christmas, and we sort of scoot them around with all the other bromides and truisms that we that we bring up at Christmas time, and it's just part of the decoration. No, it's Scripture. The Christmas story is Scripture. It's history, and it actually happened. Well, final point from our text today. We also have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ who is both willing and able to redeem us. Boaz was willing and able, and he did it. Jesus was willing and able to redeem us. To redeem us. The word redeem means to purchase. It's what we're doing when we run around to shopping malls and redeem things. We are buying things. We're meant to see ourselves in the book of Ruth. We should. All hope was lost. That's our lives. We left Israel to go to Moab. That's our lives. We're as good as dead with no future. That's our lives. But we have a kinsman redeemer. We have one who is a redeemer, who is both willing and able to redeem us. Listen to these familiar words. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Imagine leaving one of your gifts under the Christmas tree unopened. I remember one time finding a gift that somehow had been scooted under the couch or something to me that I hadn't opened. It was like, I don't know, a week or two after the fact. Man, I tore into that thing faster than melted butter. It was wonderful. And it was so surprising. But can you imagine, like, you got a gift from somebody special. You, you just don't open it. It's just there. None of us would do that. Not only because it would be offensive to the person who gave it, but also we long to open gifts from people we love. 
we would never not open a gift. Think about the words I just read. All have sinned and fall short of the, glo- of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's a gift that we should open. Perspective is the gift that also keeps on giving as long as we choose to unwrap it. Don't fail to unwrap the gift of perspective and the difficult life or the difficult situation that you may find yourself in. Maybe a gift. Maybe a gift that God's giving to actually give you more than your request. Let's pray. Our Father, we join in saying a big amen to Paul's words from Ephesians 3, where he said, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Father, you are able to do far more than we ask or imagine. Thank you for those moments in life where you've given us the gift of perspective, that you've enabled us, helped us to see that you have not abandoned us, even though we may have wandered off to Moab. That even when we point to you as the reason for the the embittered lives that we live, that you haven't given up on us. You had a future for Naomi. You have a future for us. You had a future for Ruth. You have a future for us. There is a Boaz, and his name is Jesus who is both willing and able to redeem us. And not merely to give us salvation, but to give us daily purpose in life in the midst of our struggles that we may be drawn closer and closer into fellowship with him. Lord, we're grateful for this wonderful story, not simply because it gives us a background for David, but also because it shows us that we can depend on you in times of famine and in times of feasting you are, the, you are the good God that we can trust. And so we rededicate ourselves to you and commit ourselves to you even more. And we pray in Jesus' name, our kinsman and redeemer. Amen.